Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Uh, Jesus left uh, Galilee, the uh, northern part of the land of Palestine, and made his way down the traditional pilgrim's route through Samaria, down to Judea, and then over into Perea, which uh, is modern-day Jordan, Transjordan in those days, on the east side of the Jordan River. Luke tells us that he'd set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He was resolute in his determination to go uh, to Jerusalem and to die. What he had yet to face was the darkness of the Garden in Gethsemane, the unfairness of the trial in the Judgment Hall of Pilate, the whipping post in the, in the fortress of Antonio, and then a bloody cross. And as I've pointed out time and time again in the Gospel of Mark, our Lord's concern during these uh, weeks was to teach his disciples the implications of his death, both for himself and for them. He wanted us to understand that dying is something that every authentic believer has to do. We have to die every day. As Jesus put it, if we're going to follow him, we have to take up our cross and uh, perish on that cross. And what he's trying to do in, in these texts that we're reading, that Mark has preserved for us from Peter's lips, is to drive home this idea of the death that's ours, as well as the death that was his. Now, he came over into Perea, and he began to teach. And uh, we're told that the Pharisees raised this question of divorce and remarriage. Actually, they knew what our Lord believed, because uh, his teaching on marriage was very explicit. From the very beginning of his ministry, he began to talk about the necessity of one man and one woman staying together for, uh, for life. That, that is the divine pattern. So they, they really had no question about, his, about what he taught. Mark tells us that they did, they did this uh, to test him. They questioned him to test him. Now, there were probably two reasons why they did so. Perea was uh, Herod Antipas' uh, realm. He was the tetrarch, the governor of, of Perea. And as you may recall, Herod had divorced his wife, uh, Nabataean princess, to marry the uh, infamous Herodias. She had divorced her husband, Philip, in order to marry Herod. Actually, uh, Herod seduced her when uh, she and her husband were visiting his palace. 
and then convinced her to leave her husband and marry him. And it was for that reason that John the Baptist denounced both of them, and it was for that reason that John the Baptist lost his head. Herod uh, had him imprisoned at Machairus and then eventually uh, beheaded him. So I think the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus to talk himself into trouble. If he said enough about marriage, uh, Herod would probably uh, react and take his life. But I think there's another reason. I think the Pharisees wanted to split the crowd. Because then as now, there were two views of marriage. There were those that took it seriously, and they were a very small group in uh, Palestine at that time, a very small minority in the Greek and Roman world, and uh, perhaps a little larger group, but still a, a small group of people in, in the land of Palestine that really took marriage seriously. They followed uh, a rabbi by the name of Shammai, who taught that there was really only one basis for divorce and remarriage, and that was adultery. But most people took marriage very uh, very lightly. We have uh, in our possession uh, uh, the writings of a rabbi, Ben Sirah, who uh, said if your wife displeases you in any way, you then can, as he put it, cut off your flesh. An obvious reference to uh, Genesis 1 and 3 and the idea of being one flesh. And uh, they uh, all they had to do to divorce their wives in those days is simply to say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And the marriage was null and, and void. Women did not have that right. They weren't protected by the courts, but uh, men could put their wives, uh, wives away. And the Pharisees knew that if uh, Jesus uh, said too much about marriage and the necessity of staying with your marriage, that the crowds would no longer, no longer follow him. And the same thing is true today. If you're uh, going to follow Jesus, he's going to ask you to stay with your marriage. And it may be very hard, may be very difficult, but that's what he asks. You know, the same thing is true today. There are those among us that take marriage very seriously. We, we see it as a binding commitment. It's not a uh, negotiable franchise, but it's a lifelong contract. And there are others that look at marriage uh, as though it's... Uh, like buying a ticket for the lottery. When you lose, you just tear up the ticket and, and get another one. Or as someone has said, uh, we marry, uh, we marry uh, quickly and we uh, repeat at leisure. Uh, that's the prevailing spirit in our world today. And Jesus uh, inveighs against that spirit. He has some some things to say to us about the necessity of sticking with your marriage, no matter what it, what it costs us. Now, um, the argument in this section revolves around this notion of commanding and permitting. Mark has given us a shorthand version of the controversy. He doesn't tell us everything that transpired. Mark gives us a little longer account, but neither account in itself is complete because each author has a little different purpose. But uh, the argument revolved around what Moses commanded and what Moses permitted. What seems to have happened is that the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, can, can, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? And Jesus said, in effect, let's don't talk about divorce and remarriage. Let's talk about staying married. Uh, what did Moses say? And they said, well, Moses commanded us to uh, put our wives away. And Jesus said, no, 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 you're wrong. He didn't command you. He permitted it. 
and uh, what was commanded was something else, as we'll see in a moment. And I think at this point the Pharisees corrected themselves because they said, well, then uh, Moses did permit us to put away our wives. And Jesus points out, yes, that permission was given in the Old Testament. And permission is given in the New Testament for divorce. There is, I think, at least one and possibly two bases for, uh, there are two bases for divorce and remarriage. Adultery is one, as Jesus points out. And uh, for myself, uh, at least this is my conviction, that Paul uh, permits divorce and remarriage in cases of abandonment. Uh, so permission is, is granted. But what we have to understand is that Jesus is saying that permission is granted because of the hardness of people's hearts. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you don't have to get a divorce. Any marriage can be saved. Any marriage. If you're thinking about getting a divorce, you need to think again because that marriage can be saved. The only thing that breaks up a marriage is that somebody has a hard heart. It's not that you married the wrong person. It's that somebody has a hard heart. That's the issue. That's always the issue. I've been in the ministry now for 30 years in various capacities and and I don't do as much now as I used to, but I used to do a lot of marriage counseling. And it's my conviction that, that 100% of the couples that I have counseled with who ended up uh, tearing their marriage apart do so because one or the other has a hard heart. That's why people get divorces. Now, what's a hard heart? Well, it's an unwillingness to submit to what God has to say. As Frank Sinatra says, I'm going to do it my way, see? But if we're willing to do things God's way, any marriage, and I will say this unequivocally, any marriage can be saved. And that's God's intention. That's what he wants. It's what he desperately longs for, for each of us. One man and one woman together for life. That's the pattern. Now, um, I think the Pharisees were a bit confused still about what Moses permitted and what Moses commanded. Because if you notice, Jesus' question is, what did Moses command? And they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce. And then Jesus points out that it's hardness of heart that created the situation that about which Moses gave permission. But then Jesus goes on to say at the beginning of creation, it wasn't so. Let's go back. To the, to the origins of marriage, as, as Chuck Swindoll says, let's strike the original match. Let's go back and see what God had intended. What did God command? That's the issue. What did he command? And uh, he takes the Pharisees all the way back to Genesis 3. And it's in, always been interesting to me that when Jesus engaged in controversy, he always went back to the Word. Always. He based everything upon, upon what the Word had to say. Now that's his question. What does the Word have to say? And if you listen to what God has to say and you do not harden your heart, you can save your marriage. Okay? Now, what did God have to say? Well, first of all, he said that in the beginning, he created, he made them male and female. That's what God did. He created a race of males and females. 
whenever I'm talking about sexuality, I, I love to ask a question of the crowd. Uh, I did this just recently, group, speaking to a group of men, and I asked them, I'm not going to ask you, but I asked them, how many of you are sexual? And, uh, you, you know, guys roll their eyes and they uh, <laughs> look at one another and blush and, and giggle. And uh, I say, no, no, how many of you are sexual? And finally they begin to catch on, a few hands go up, you know, because uh, we're all sexual. We're 100% sexual. By that I mean you have gender. Uh, when you apply for uh, a driver's license or for a position, usually there's a little box to check that says sex. And you'll only find M and F there. <laughs> the human race is made up of M's and F's, males and females, there are no, as philosophers love to say, tertium quid. There are no third things. When I look out there, I see men and women, boys and girls, males and females. That's, that's what we are. And uh, that's for a purpose, as we'll see. Now, if you wonder what you are, <laughs> tomorrow morning when you step out of the shower, take a real good look at yourself. God has given us very specific gender markers. And if you're in a, a man's body, that's what you are. You are a man. And if you're in a woman's body, you are a woman. God didn't make a mistake. He didn't stuff a woman into a man's body and vice versa. You may think that's true. You may be told that's true. You may feel that way. But the facts are that if you have a man's body, you are a man. And if you are a, in a woman's body, you're a woman. I can assure you that that's so. Now, what difference does it make that you're a man or a woman? Well, it makes a lot of difference. In one sense, uh, the, 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 the likeness, the sameness is much larger than the differences. You know, we are all created in the image of God. That is, we are more like God than any other creation on the face of the earth. We're the nearest thing to God that there is on this earth. Both men and women are created in his image. They are like God. So in that sense, we are equal. But equal doesn't mean that we're the same. We're not clones of one another. We are different. What difference does your sex make? Well, it makes a lot of difference. It makes a difference in the way you walk. Men swagger. Makes a difference in the way you talk. Hey, Adrian, Adrian. You know. <clears throat> Makes a difference in what you watch on, t on TV. Real men watch Monday Night Football, you know. <laughs> it used to make a difference in who wears jewelry. Doesn't anymore. But. makes a difference what restroom you go into. It makes a difference how you sit. You know, men sit with their ankles up on their knees and their feet go to sleep and they fall down when they stand up. It's the most uncomfortable <laughs> way in the world to sit, but that's the way men sit, see. makes a lot of difference, a lot of difference. Now, let me, let me, let me tell you something. The Bible doesn't tell us very much about those differences. We need to be very careful here. We need to make absolute what the Bible makes absolute. And we must not make absolute what the Bible does not. About the only thing the Bible tells us is that women are the weaker vessel. That's in First uh, Peter 3. And, for, and he doesn't tell us in what way they're weaker. 
It's wrong to extrapolate from that that women are weaker emotionally or whatever, because Peter doesn't say that. He just says they're weaker. I think for myself, it means that they're weaker physically. You know, not all men are stronger than all women. But in general, men are stronger than women physically. If, if the Olympic uh, records mean anything, you know, the best of the women competing against the best of men in the world will probably come out a, a little bit less in terms of strength and speed, although they're exceptions. Uh, I went to high school with, uh, uh, with um, uh, Kathy Walker, whose uh, brother was Doak Walker, the uh, Hall of Famer, f- played for years for the Detroit Lions way, way back in the 50s. And, uh, oh, Patsy, excuse me, not Kathy. Patsy was a classmate of mine. Doak Walker was several years ahead of me. But uh, Patsy could uh, outrun, outthrow, outhit any boy in our junior high until she got into high school and she realized that that wasn't getting her any dates, so she backed <laughs> off. You know, so there are, there, there, there are exceptions. You know, and there are some really super uh, athletes among women in our congregation here that can make the rest of us look like clods. So I'm saying in general that's true. But that's all the Bible tells us. Beyond that, we don't know what the differences are. And we need to be very, very careful about assigning differences that are not scriptural. Okay? Let's just stick to what the Bible actually uh, actually says. But uh, Jesus' point, Matt, uh, Moses' point, is that men and women are different. They're very different. Now, why did God make them different? Why did he make uh, a male and a female? Well, we're told what, what his intent was. He made the male and female, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his, to his wife. In other words, he made two so they could merge into one. Two people becoming not a third thing, say, but one, one person. Now there's some marvelous mystery in that, uh, in that, in that merger. We don't understand it. You know, it, 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 it's awesome, really, when you think about it. There's a wonderful little proverb in uh, chapter 30 of, of our book of Proverbs. One of those proverbs of ascending numeration, three plus four, three plus. You, you observe those. The point of which is that the last line in the proverb is the really significant statement. Three things, the wise man says, are, are, are wonderful. The fourth is awesome, he says. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on the rock, the way of a ship upon the sea, and the way of a man with a maiden, he says. That's, that's awesome stuff there. There's real mystery going on. And, and Paul says the same thing in Ephesians when he talks about a man and a woman merging and becoming in that in that wonderful way a, a type of our merger into the person of Christ. And he says this is all very, very mysterious. We, we don't understand it all. It's a great mystery, he says. But it's a wonderful thing to be uh, to behold. Uh, it's something that science really can't explain. I was listening to a tape recently by a scientist on the various ways that creatures are sexual. And uh, he pointed out that some, some creatures uh, reproduce themselves by dividing, like amoeba. You know, one day there's one amoeba, and the next day there's two amoeba. And then there are four, and then there are 16, and so forth. You know. God could have made us that way. You know, it could have been just one sex. 
One morning you would wake up and you'd look. <laughs> Hi there. <laughs> or um, some some creatures divide by uh, leaving parts of themselves behind, like worms. And, you know, you trim your beard, stick it in a petri dish. And, There'd be a whole bunch of you the next day. Or you could spawn like salmon, or you could uh, pollinate like uh, like zucchini or something. <laughs> like our peach tree. But, uh, see, God made this wonderful thing that we call sex. You know, we probably not even the right name for it. We don't even know what to call it. Just this wonderful urge to merge that we have. And the two become become one, and it isn't like... Anything that animals do. In fact, if we reduce it to an animal function, we just we just ruin it. Just ruin it for everybody. Uh, I told you a couple of years ago about the time the coyote uh, attacked our dog. Carolyn and I were fishing up on the middle fork, and Carolyn shouted, and down the down the bank came a coyote. And I thought at the time the coyote was uh, going to uh, kill our dog, but I've since decided that that uh, coyote did not have lunch on his mind. He had love on his mind. And uh, it was interesting, two or three minutes there, you know, we got into the, the worst dog fight I've ever seen, and and finally we were able to drag our dog away. And But you know what? I did not report that assault to the fishing game. I did not tell them that that cow tried to sexually assault my dog, because that's the sort of thing you expect from an animal. That's what they do, but you don't expect that from people. And when they act like that, we know something's wrong with them. Okay? So it's something I can't even explain it. I was thinking all week, how can I explain this thing? And it dawned on me, you can't. You can't. There's a great mystery here. But see, what God did is he created male and female with an urge to merge so that out of that relationship would come a union that would endure throughout life. Say, one man, one woman together uh, for life. Now, when does that union occur? I think it occurs when you stand um, before a pastor or a justice of the peace and you vow to love and cherish and honor that person until death separates you. I do think something happens, something mystical happens at that moment. I think that vow is heard and it's remembered and it's trusted and it's written down in heaven. And I think it, it, God intends us to keep that promise. That is not a promise to make a promise. That is a promise. That's a non-negotiable contract. You are stuck together for life. And God hears that. We need to know that. Um, let me read something that Malachi said. He was uh, distressed with the priests of his day who were apparently swapping wives and doing a, a number of ungodly things. And he says, uh, this is another thing I want to say about you, talking to the priest. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it, accepts it with favor from your hand. This is a very cavalier attitude toward marriage, tossing their wives away. And uh, God says, you know, what right do you have to stand up and in front of your people and offer sacrifices? Shame on you, he says. 
and God isn't going to hear you. He's going to listen to you. And you say, for what reason? Why doesn't God hear you? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and your wife against the one whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion. Wonderful word. Use the Hebrew word for friend here. She is your friend and your wife by covenant. And he uses the same word that's used in the prior chapter to refer to the covenant that God made with Israel when he said, I'm going to love you like you've never been loved before, no matter what you do to the end of your days. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. And uh, Malachi says, you've abandoned the wife of your covenant. And he, he does what Jesus did. He takes them back to the beginning and he says, remember, remember what God did? He made one. He made one. See? He made Adam, and then he made one for Adam. And it wasn't uh, another man. It wasn't, it wasn't Adam and Steve that he made. Uh, it, it was a woman. And he didn't bring a whole harem to Adam. He, he, there weren't ten that he made. And as a matter of fact, he goes on to say, though he had the residue of the Spirit, he anticipates the question they might raise. Why one? Well, it wasn't because he didn't have the resources to make a whole bunch of mates for, for Adam. He made one because it was his intention that one man and one woman stay glued together no matter what through their entire lives, period. And it's a covenant. That's a binding covenant, no matter what secular society is, is telling us today. And we need to uh, take our Lord's words uh, seriously here. Now, um, let me say this. The implications of that unity have to be worked out. And I don't have time to, to elaborate on that this morning. My purpose this morning was not to speak on, on all the details of keeping your, marriage, uh, keeping your marriage intact. There are a lot of things you can do. There are really only two things that, that Scripture very specifically tells us to do. He says to you men, we men, just sacrificially love your wife. Just give yourself to her. The way Christ gave himself to the church. A gentleman nowhere, nowhere, I'm going to say it again, nowhere in the Bible does it say husbands lead your wives. Puts it the other way around. It says wives be subject to your husbands. You see, the problem is we're inclined to dominate and tyrannize and be little petty tyrants. And we, what we need to hear is the other side. We need to hear that we need to sacrificially love our wives the way Christ loved the church. See, to buy the sofa that your wife wants instead of buying the shotgun that you think you need, to do the loving, kind things that, that, that demonstrate that we really care about our wives more than we care about ourselves. That's what he's saying. See? And then he says uh, to you women, to respect and honor your husbands and to acknowledge their leadership. Very clear. I, I do not believe in egalitarian marriages. I believe that marriages are set up by God in a certain way, that, that men are the acknowledged leaders in that relationship, but their leadership is a model of servanthood like our Lord's servanthood. They are to love their wives sacrificially and give themselves to them. And their, their wives are to honor and respect. And you say, well, I can't really respect our husband. He's, 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 you know, he's such a jerk. And... Uh, you, but surely you can find some things about him you can respect. You know, he's not a total jerk. And as George MacDonald says, uh, when you honor something, love is not far behind. God will restore your, your love. That's all it's asked of us, folks.
We men are to sacrificially love our wives, and women are to honor their husbands and, and acknowledge their leadership, and that marriage can be saved, unless somebody has a hard heart. See? Now, I didn't mean it's all. We need to read books on communication. I've, in the last year, I've read two books on, on communication that have really helped me in my relationship with, with Carolyn. We, need, we may need a third party to come in and help us untangle things, and we may need a lot of counseling and a lot of help because we've all got a lot of things to unlearn. But see, the real secret to it, the bottom line issue, is commitment, faithfulness, integrity. What holds us together is that vow. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, no matter what, what it may cost. And that is the command to which our Lord takes us. Look at verse uh, 9. That's really the, the only command in the whole passage. What God has joined together, let man not separate. See? Now, uh, yesterday, Saturday, was our my 34th anniversary. Uh, Carol and I were walking last week, and uh, we were talking about it. She said, uh, man, 33 years of bliss. And I said, well, honey, it's been 34. She said, yeah, I know. <laughs> hadn't always been easy hadn't always been easy been tough times and I remember one time we drove up to White Rock Lake in Dallas, Texas and we were talking about where we were going with our marriage and there were a lot of things that were just pulling us apart I was a full-time student and she was working and going to school and boy, we, you know, things, things were tough money was tight and uh, we were having a hard time and uh the one thing that we reminded ourselves of and the one thing that we've gone back to over and over again is that we're going to make this thing work no matter what. We're going to stick together for life. That vow is final and absolute. And we're going to tough it out no matter what it costs us. And I was sitting with my, our grand... For the first time, we had our whole family together last week and our grandchildren and all. I was sitting in the family room watching those kids run around. Run around. And I was thinking, man, I'm so glad I stuck with this thing. I'm so glad I did. It's been worth it. I sent Carolyn a Valentine card last year, one of those uh, Hallmark contemporary cards. It says, uh, has a funny little pig on the front, and he says, I want you, I need you, I must have you. Pants, snort, wheeze. You are my fondest wish. You are my every dream. You are exquisite. I worship the ground you walk on. I worship you from afar. I adore your eyes, your hair. I'm a hunk of burning love for you. I'm a seething cauldron of passion. I'm flaky with desire. My love for you is endless and undying to be continued next Valentine's Day. (laughs) And I'll tell you what. I want to continue that not only next Valentine's Day, but tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Despite the stresses and strains on our marriage, I want to stay with it. Carolyn, we were walking yesterday, and Carolyn looked at her ring, and she said, I need to get it polished. It's all scarred up. And I thought of a line from Robert Browning. I couldn't remember all of it, so I went back and checked it up, checked it out, and there's a line in one of his poems that says, Wedding ring. And so that really is the bottom line issue. Stick with your marriage. One woman, one man together for life. Some of you have tried that and it didn't work. Your husband, your wife walked off anyway. Uh, Paul says, um, 
as far as it lies within you, live at peace with all men. And sometimes uh, you can't live at peace with someone. They, they, they don't want the marriage because their heart is hard and they walk off and leave you. It's not your fault. But to the extent that you can, stick with that marriage. Even if there's unfaithfulness. You don't have to divorce because somebody is unfaithful in the relationship. I love old Hosea, that cuckolded husband who whose wife wasn't faithful to him, not once, but numerous times. And, and uh, he, uh, he went after her every time. He said, how can I let you go? How can I let you go? So I'm just saying what Jesus said. This is a command. What, what God has joined together. Wasn't, wasn't the minister that did that. Wasn't the justice of peace. What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. One woman together, one man together. For life. I want to read one of the saddest letters I have ever seen. I don't think I received this letter. I don't know where I got it. I just found it in my, I was looking through some of my illustrations. It was a letter that was sent to someone here at the church uh, years ago. I'll leave the names out. It says, I want it known to the public that I made a mistake all through my marriage to, I said things that weren't right. I battered and abused her physically and verbally. I was unfair in the property settlement. I acted like a fool. I am lower than the ground I walk on. I have to live the rest of my life now without the person I truly love and that used to love me with no chance to undo the wrong I've committed. I lost the best thing that ever happened to me, my best friend. People, don't take your marriage for granted like I did. Divorce is not just a seven-letter word. Those are sobering words. We need to take seriously what our Lord's te- Lord has told us. That God has joined together. Don't put us under. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we have much to thank you for, and we have much of which we should repent. There's... There are many times in our marriages that we've had hard hearts and uh, our spouses have suffered the consequences as have we. And we thank you that there is the possibility of restoration, complete and total restoration. And that um, our marriages can be put back together again and we can stay together as you have asked us to do until death separates us. Not as long as we love, but as long as we live. Lord, give us the grace to be obedient men and women, we ask in Jesus' name.